Today's episode of Higher Learning, I speak with David Ackert. He's the founder and CEO of a company by the name of Pipeline Plus. David is an incredible story and I learned so much, not the least of which is that he used to play the villain on TV shows like NYPD Blue and CSI. He's also an author of a book that's coming out in September and he has so much to say about hiring talent and how to get the right people into your organization. I am so excited for you to hear this episode with David and can't wait for you to hear more. Welcome to another episode of Higher Learning. I am your host, Oz Rashid. Today, we have a very special guest. We are joined by David Ackert. He is the CEO and founder of a company by the name of Pipeline Plus. How are you doing today, David? Oz, it's great to see you. I'm doing just great. Happy to be here. Yeah, but it was good that I got to see you in person in Saster about six months ago, and now we're back here on the podcast. So always have great conversations with you. Really looking forward to today. I want to start here because I want to I want people to learn about you. I want them to learn about Pipeline Plus. We'll get there as we get to the end of the podcast, but we'll start here. Can you tell us a little bit about Pipeline Plus and what you do for your customers? Sure. So uh, we specialize in business development, primarily for professional services firms with an emphasis on the legal industry. So uh, we help law firms generate more revenue, acquire more clients, whether that's through putting an infrastructure in place through you know internal business development professionals or by outsourcing services. We've developed a technology platform they license. So like you, a multifaceted business that helps our clients in a variety of ways, but it's all to help them ultimately develop business for their uh, for their firms. Yeah. So you're working with legal firms. Are you charging them like an exorbitant hourly fee structure like I've had to do with but the legal firms I work with, or are you more of like a you know, user basis or cost usage basis in terms of pricing? Yeah, you know, it's that's right. So the law firms definitely operate in a very different stratosphere in terms of their relationship to money and value. You know, and it all comes from their own uh, correlation of the billable hour, right? So it's like an hour is worth a certain amount of money in their mind. And they bill in six minute increments in the corporate law sector, which is you know primarily where we work. So for them, six minutes is a very precious unit of time. And many of them attribute you know thousands of dollars to an hour of their time. Wow. So I've, now I've got to dive in here. The curiosity is going to kill the cat otherwise. So I imagine you had to conform your business development structure and the way that you train your salespeople to think like this, because a lot of times their potential customers have this stuff going on in their head. And so if you kind of treat them like a, a retail customer or even a financial services customer, you might not have the outcomes you want. So did you have to modify and really customize customize things based on kind of your ideal customer profile? Well, yeah, it's a very unique industry to sell into. I mean, first of all, they're incredibly skeptical uh, as buyers. Um, you know, as lawyers, they're trained to look for the liability and everything, right? Because that's what they do for their client. How could this go wrong? And so, of course, they're doing that for themselves, which means it's very difficult for them to get comfortable with and lean into a buying decision. They've got to uh, look at, okay, who else is doing this and give me a case study. And now I'm going to think about it for a long time. And then I'm going to, you know, come back to you with 10 other questions and really, uh, really put you through the, the the ringer before I'm going to make a decision, right? That's kind of the way that they operate. So uh, yes, at the end of the day, you know, we can price things in such a way where it might be higher than other marketplaces, but the sales cycle is so long that it kind of balances out. I love that. When you were building the software, did you know right away that you were going to go into this industry? Or is this something that as things evolved and you saw who was taking to it, you started to more pursue that route? Well, <laughs> 
you know, I wish I could tell you the the sort of standard entrepreneur story, right? Where it's like I had this idea and I saw a gap in the marketplace, and I don't know, I had a, I had an edge up on everybody else, and so I went in there and I created something really new and interesting that nobody else had thought of, and now we're dominating this corner of the market, right? That's the story you're supposed to tell when you're hanging out in the Sastra community. I feel seen right now. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm here to tell you that that is not my story. Um, I, I blundered into this through a series of um, uh, requirements for survival and uh, happy accidents and, uh, frankly, just sticking to it. I'm much more the tortoise than the hare in this story. Um, I started off, so my first career, man, I was a TV actor. I had nothing to, to do with software. I had nothing to do with lawyers or law firms or professional services. Wow. Uh, I was a I was villain of the week on a bunch of shows like CSI Miami and Monk and Bones and West Wing. Whoa, whoa. My research team didn't tell me any of this. This is Oh, man. They, they didn't Google around enough. Wow. So, so villain. So like you were getting typecast as the guy that the, the cops were busting. Wow. Well, of course. You and I share a little bit of that Middle Eastern blood. And so, you know, <laughs> the first thing they think is this guy could play a terrorist. Let's let's put him into that role. That's hilarious. Okay. So you were doing this, you were getting these acting gigs, and, and for whatever reason, you decided that this wasn't gonna be long term. And then you pivoted or how had that work? Pretty much. I mean, it was feast, it was a feast or famine lifestyle, right? I'd get onto a show like CSI Miami and I'd make a good amount of money for the week I was hired, but then I'm unemployed for three months until the next one. So it is fine in your 20s but once i got married and i wanted to you know settle down and create a lifestyle and build a family and all of that it just wasn't going to be conducive so i was really at this crossroads because um i didn't know what i was going to do next with my career and my wife who's a lawyer said well gosh you know you've got good communication skills good presentation skills you've learned a lot about business development through the various day jobs that you've taken and just through this whole notion of auditioning and auditioning for jobs you know you 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 you've learned something about persistence and grit and uh, i can teach you what you need to know about selling into law firms but i'll tell you professional services need what you have because they don't learn any of this stuff in their vocational training and they need to understand how to sell what they have. So she helped me create a curriculum and get this business off the ground. And that was really the beginning of it. Wow. And they say behind every great man is an even better woman. And so without, and they are right. Yeah. Pushing you and pulling you in that direction, helping you get kind of the knowledge you needed. You wouldn't be where you're at today. That is absolutely incredible. Um, there's another thing I want to dive into, because when we last talked, you were telling me about you're soon to be an author, which I find fascinating. Yeah. I find that process fascinating. You're writing a book called The Shortlist. And from my understanding, the kind of theme of the book is your idea of focusing on quality over quantity. So I want to understand why did you think that this was a topic worth discussing? How did you come to this? Did you know you again, I got to ask like the, the, the process. Did you know you wanted to write a book and then came up with the idea? Or is this something that has been percolating in your head and you just wanted to get pen to paper? How did that work? Well, some of it is just, you know, over the last 20 years of doing what I've been doing at Pipeline Plus, I've learned things that ultimately I just wanted to capture someplace and be able to share with people. Um, but a, a lot of this came, you know, it's originated in the entertainment industry where it's very much a who you know town, right? I'm sure you've heard that phrase when they talk about Hollywood. And I didn't know anybody. So I created a network in the entertainment industry uh, from scratch. And what I found was that playing a high volume game, getting to know lots of different people at a relatively superficial level wasn't that satisfying for me. I'm the kind of person who appreciates authenticity, who wants straight talk and who gets kind of impatient with um, you know, that kind of surface level relationship building. 
And uh, in fact, I even developed a few friendships in the entertainment industry that went south because it turned out there really wasn't any substance behind the relationships. There was a lot of like, well, what can you do for me kind of friendships, which I learned the hard way, right? So that's where I thought, okay, I'm not the kind of person that's really going to thrive in an environment where I have to know a thousand people, right? I'm going to be much more successful if I can develop a few dozen solid relationships and really go for quality over quantity. And then as I found my way into this world of business development for professional services firms, I found that idea really resonating because the people that we work with are very busy. They're mostly timekeepers. They're billing their time. They already have a full-time job. They don't necessarily have a lot of bandwidth for business development. So they've got to be very careful and very selective and very discerning about who they focus on. When they're building their pipeline, they need to focus on their top five to 10 clients to expand those relationships. They need to focus on their top five to 10 most likely prospects because they can't be sitting around talking to everybody who was willing to talk to them. And they've got to really focus on their top five to 10 referral sources because at the end of the day, they don't have time to go have lunch with 30 people every month, right? So this idea of coming up with a short list identifying those qualifiers that filter out everybody else so that you can double down on the essential relationships is something that not only I have found resonates for me, but resonates as a business development philosophy for the people that we work with. I really love that. I mean, listen, I am a uh, West Coast, Southern California guy, but ultimately I know that, you know, being in those, especially in those Hollywood circles, that if you're looking for substance, to your point, sometimes it's it's not like that. Sometimes it is those superficial relationships. So I love that story of how that kind of resonated with you and wanting to find that authenticity. And I totally agree with you about focus. One of the biggest lessons I've taken, especially as I've kind of moved into the SaaS space, is this understanding ultimately that um, focusing on a very narrow ideal customer profile and then expanding from there is a key to success. And targeting those relationships and building deeper relationships Rather than this spray and pray type mentality, I don't think it works in talent and acquisition. I don't think it works in sales. I think it's a really strong message that you're putting out there. I'm interested. What surprised you about the process of putting together a book that maybe you didn't know going in? Anything? Yeah, um, I found it to be, first of all, a tremendous amount of work. I have a newfound respect for anyone who's ever written a book, whether they published it or not. Um, I've discovered that uh, very few people ever actually get around to writing a book, even though a lot of people say, oh, I've got a book in me, right? So, uh, and I can appreciate why. It has required a lot of concentration, a lot of pushing other things to the side, really prioritizing it. Um, I've also been pleasantly surprised by how much of a creative process it is. Uh, you know, I if if I showed you a picture of my wall right now, you'd think that it's a scene from A Beautiful Mind, right? I've got post-its all over the place and things stuck to my wall and notes. And, you know, there's just been like this outpouring of ideas and this whole kind of uh, journey through my own subconscious. I'll, I'll go to bed at night and in the morning I wake up and I've got an idea for the book. I don't know where it came from, right? So in some ways, I don't even feel like I'm writing the book. I'm delivering the book, but... What I'm ultimately putting down on paper is an amalgamation of things that are either inspired by others or uh, things that I don't even know where they came from. I'm just kind of downloading them. And, and I really feel like the curator of all of these ideas more than anything else. Brilliant. So like, is there like a, I don't want to ask if there's a process, but like, is there a time of day or night or weekends where you find you're in that most creative zone? Are you doing any things to get into that creative zone? Like what's your, what, cause everyone's different, right? We all, we all percolate different when it comes to ideas and writing and 
what what for you has worked? What have you seen that is uh, something you maybe you've learned about yourself during this process? The thing that I would say I learned the most is that when I sit down to write, the first 30 minutes are completely unproductive in terms of writing, but they are critical to get me to the point where I can do any writing. So the first 30 minutes are really frustrating, right? Because I'm reading what I've just written and I whatever I wrote yesterday, and I'm like, I'm not even sure this is any good. And now I'm you know trying to tweak or edit it when I should be just adding to it. Or um, I'll kind of stare at a blank page and I'm like, what? how do I even start this next chapter, right? So there's been a lot of that writer's block as actually a rite of passage for every writing session. But once I get past the first 30 minutes and I'm starting to get into the rhythm, then it's really joyful because it just starts pouring out of me and I really feel like I'm onto something. So I've noticed that pattern emerge every time I sit down. Yeah, I, I'm totally with you on that. I can I can take that across a bunch of different lanes. Like if you're going to the gym for the first time in a little while, that first lift or anything just feels like pain or you're going for a run or anything that requires consistency and some level of discipline. The beginning is always toughest. And then when you get into the flow, right, you're good to go. I'll tell you what, like, you know, somebody who's done a few speaking engagements, there was a time where um, I would have a little bit of anxiety going in. And what I learned about myself is like, once you just get onto it and you start talking, you stop, you stop thinking about the environment and the circumstances and you just get flowing. Um, and so that sounds very similar to what you're talking about. It's, it's most people can't overcome that first 30 minutes. And so if you don't, then you're not going to write a book, but if you can, and you can get into your flow state, then you're going to maybe write something super great, super impactful. So that's awesome. I appreciate you giving us a little bit on that. I wanted, I wanted to ask you because when we were at Saster, you know, one of my mentalities around my business development philosophies is that instead of myself looking for what I can get out of somebody, I'm always trying to figure out what I can give. And over time that ends up leading to great opportunities and great partnerships and things like that. So I remember when we were talking at Saster, I asked, how can I help you at the end of the conversation? And I think at the end, you kind of gave me a little bit of a throwaway answer, but then you followed up on it. And I think a lot of that is because why we're doing this pod right now. And then you actually dived into that in your book, where we talk about how people can be, I don't know, somewhat reticent to ask for help. So I'm just interested, where did you come to with that? What, what, what are you saying with that? What, what's going to be in the book around that? Yeah, so the book that I've written, it's uh, getting published by Greenleaf Book Group in September. Um, and uh, in in setting this up, I've had to, I have the really the, the privilege of being able to interview various people uh, to add their perspective to the book. And the book talks about a system, taking a systematic approach to business development. So you, you know, identify this short list and now you've got this list. And then of course the question is, well, what do I do with these people, right? And I had the opportunity to interview Dr. Xian Zhao, who did a number of studies on this idea of helpfulness, because I thought to myself, okay, you've got these people, you've winnowed them down. They're obviously the most important people in your professional network. They want to help you, right? They are invested in you. You want to help them. So why do we have all these hangups around help? And I asked uh, Dr. Zhao this question and she said, yeah, in our studies, what we found is that people are reluctant to ask for help uh, because a number of things. One, it tends to, in a world of maintaining high status, in a main world of maintaining a high profile, it tends to, in our own minds, make us think that we're somehow stepping down in, in our status, right? Like, I need help. Like, I'm helpless. And of course, we don't want to think of ourselves that way. We want to think of ourselves like we've got our act together. We don't need anything from anybody. So we don't ask for help 
for seeming like we are maybe going to come across as helpless. Another reason we don't ask for help is we don't want to feel indebted to somebody like, oh, now I'm going to owe you one because you helped me. Right. So we have a lot of stuff around this. And of course, you know, she talks about how some of these things are cultural as well, but certainly in American culture, there is this posturing, there is this notion of, well, there's going to be an IOU. Uh, and so we, we don't do it. And what her studies have shown is that people are six times more likely to help us than we think they are before we ask. So we've got it all wrong. You know, we've got this assumption in place of like, oh, you know, I'm going to be, you know, a, a nuisance to them or um, they're not going to want to do it or they're going to do it reluctantly. We have this whole narrative worked out that is completely inaccurate by, by a, a, a matter of six X. So they're six times more likely to help us than we think. And what we, what I then baked into the book is this process of, okay, once you've narrowed down these people, then you have to get into the habit of asking for their help. Now, obviously you don't wanna be in a position where you constantly have your hand out. You wanna be looking like you alluded to earlier for ways where there's a win-win here. But you and I had this experience at Saster because you of course have developed this muscle of whenever you are in an interaction with someone and you're clearly you know, feeling like this is someone that you wanna work with or, or be helpful to in some way, you, you, you say it. And when you said to me, so David, how can I help you? I had that reaction that Dr. Zhao talks about, where I was like, oh, I'm good, man, but I appreciate it. I'll let you know if I think of anything, right? And in that moment, that's how I was feeling. I was like, well, I, I don't know Oz that well. I don't want to be too vulnerable with him. So I'm going to at least initially posture like I've got it all figured out. And, uh, you know, I'm at the same level as you. I'm not like one step below you or I need something that you have. And, you know, let's just see where this goes, right? And after you and I kind of unpacked that a bit, I relaxed and realized, well, yeah, actually I could use some introductions or here's something I'm working on, or maybe we could brainstorm together. And ultimately that led to this podcast, right? Where we were like, well, here's a way we can help each other and promote each other. But we had to get there through some of that kind of um, uh, that positioning that initially came up uh, as sort of a knee-jerk reaction to the question. Yeah, I mean, so there's a couple of things here. Like, I, I do think that a lot of people feel like asking for help is a sign of weakness, especially men and, and American right. culture you talked about, right. some masculinity to it. And yep. for me, what I've always thought is nothing truly great was ever accomplished by an individual, right? There's always a team of people working together. There's always some level of help or deficiency that we need filled. And admitting that and, and understanding and being self-aware about where you're strong or where others can 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 add value for you is not a weakness in any way. It's a sign of power that you can bring people into your sphere and do more together or give people benefit of the things that you're really great at and do something for them. And so the way I look at it is not even like somebody I'd like to work with. Do I do I frame it that way? It's when I meet people that I, I'm, I'm not even always sure what the connection will, will lead to, but it's somebody that I want to have in my my sphere in my network. That's the way I look at it, right? And I've had so many different situations where I go in with this very, uh, I guess, altruistic and authentic way of like, this is somebody I want in my sphere in my network. And I'm going to figure out if there's something I can do to help them. Because over time, what usually ends up happening in ways that many times I didn't even think could manifest. And it ends up being a connection that, you know, they open a door or tell me something or give me an idea or do something that I wouldn't have even thought. And so I'm always just trying to collect 
really interesting, amazing people, people who are great at what they do. And over time, if I add value to that relationship, whether that be my friendships, whether that be my romantic relationship, whether that be with my kids to a degree, and then certainly in any type of business or professional sphere, if I have that kind of giving mentality to people that I want to have in my network, then over time that tends to pay off. And, and I have the benefit of being, you know, the CEO and founder of my company. I don't have a quota to hit. And so I can play a little bit of a longer tail on these things and do things and, and, and know that in the future they may or may not pay off. And I know not everybody has that luxury, but that's always been my mentality. And, and, and as I've grown in my career, I've more and more become organic around it. And it's become something that just becomes almost autopilot. So when I say that to you, it's not even that I'm necessarily thinking that we're going to end up on this pod or that we're going to hire for your company or you're going to use my software. I'm going to use your software. It's like, I like David, there's some simpatico here. And I know over time, if we stay connected, that something good will come of it for both of us. And the best way I can do that is showing that I can provide value. I just don't always know what that is. And so sometimes I'm going to ask and you'll be amazed at what you hear back of what people need. So I appreciate that. I'm glad I asked that question. I'm glad we went through that positioning process to land where we did. Right now, it's turning into a great podcast, so we'll keep it going. Well, I want to I want to add one thing to what you said, which is this: you know, in the process of identifying people for your shortlist, you I, you get to know them and you get to know who they really are, and you become much more relaxed when one of them asks for help or you feel like you can ask them for help. But remember at Sasser, you and I were meeting for the first time in person. We'd had a couple of phone calls, but otherwise we didn't know each other particularly well. And so uh, for me, I, I needed a little bit more information and a little more validation of who you are so that I could relax into, okay, yeah, I am willing to be vulnerable around you. And I think it's an important point because you do wear your heart on your sleeve in that way. You are looking for collaborations in a very authentic way. But at a conference, there are a lot of people that are throwing around things like, let me know how I can help. And they don't mean it. And yeah. so, you know, I think, you know, we're always kind of making this assessment of like, do I like this person and do I feel safe with them? Because if I do, then certainly we can look for ways to be vulnerable with each other and look for ways that we can help each other. But if this is just going to be another sort of superficial offer, then I need to know what the socially acceptable response looks like. And that's where you and I had to make that transition through the course of that conversation. Now, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I will reframe it one more time. Actually, how we first met was because I was given your name as a reference for a service that I was looking for. Right. You gave me not only great advice around that service, but you gave me great founder advice, great software advice. So I think there was also a part of me that went into it saying, this man has already done for me. He already helped me out when he didn't have to do that. And so now I'm feeling, yeah, we're meeting in person and I want to pay that for it. So that makes total sense. You're right. And I think because our relationship started with you giving to me, then it just became so automatic for me to think the same way. Um, I want to ask you about this because we both are, are, are bootstrapping companies right now. We're very proud of that fact. I don't know what the future holds for me on my side, but you've been doing this for 24 years or 20 plus years. Um, we play in a world, though, that is like scale or die. You hear about hyper growth all the time. And there's yep. definitely pros and cons with that. And we've both seen them. I'm interested to know why not taking outside uh, uh, investment has been key to your experience and why that's been something that you think that's translated to your success. Well, uh, again, I wish I had like a really sexy answer here. What I can tell you is initially I didn't seek any investment because I didn't know anybody with money when I was getting started. Uh, and I wasn't even all that confident in what I was building. I mean, it was just sort of like my wife has this idea and I have these skills and I guess we're going to take a run at creating a services business. 
And it took a few years and then that started getting off the ground. And then uh, we decided, okay, we want to scale. And the only way we could think of to scale was through technology. So we built some technology, which initially we were just using internally. And then we started showing some clients what we have built to streamline our own processes. And they were like, oh, we'd like to license that. We didn't even know what that meant. We're like, uh, okay, I'll get back to you with the license, I guess. Uh, so a lot of this was naivete, right? I don't have an MBA. I didn't come to the table with all of this savvy. I was really figuring it out as I go. But we got to this point where, okay, we actually had ARR. We had a SaaS now, product now. You know, We had basically a SaaS product that we, we had incubated within a professional services company. And that continues to be the model today. Um, so by the time I knew enough about, oh, I could go get investors, I didn't need them anymore because I had, you know, taken the profit from our own professional services service line and funded our SaaS product with that. Um, and now I find myself in this place where we've got some balance, we've got multiple lines of revenue, we continue to grow the SaaS product and, you know, maybe someday that will become something that we sell. Maybe it won't, but there's no pressure that I have to do that, right? I will tell you though, that there have been times when I have become seduced, especially hanging around the Saster community by this whole notion of, oh, you got to scale and you got to 10X your business and unicorn this. And, you know, I, I find that stuff invigorating, but ultimately very dissatisfying to try to shape my business around. Um, about last year, this time, our team was triple the size it is today. We had taken on a lot of overhead. Uh, I was really in like hyper growth mentality because I thought, okay, the, the market, I guess it was a little more than a year. The marketplace was really, you know, frothy, right? A lot of people were reaching out to us and throwing a lot of multiples at us. And it, it the, I definitely uh, was starting to get swept up in that wave. And I found my stress levels going through the roof and I found myself trying to kind of mold my business uh, according to standards that uh, it had never really been set up to satisfy. And um, when I sat back to think about what do I want, I found that most of what I want is what I already have, hmm. right? And here's the thing. I'm not a hugely money motivated person. So when someone comes along and says, I'll buy your business or I'll you know, buy your interest out of your business and I'm gonna give you millions of dollars. That sounds really great. But then I think about it and I'm like, but then I'd miss what I have, right? I'd miss running the business and I'd miss being able to watch it grow to its next stage of maturity, which I'm really eager to see it go to. And if somebody else is in charge, they might not take it there. They might just liquidate it or they might merge it into something else or they're gonna have their own agenda, right? And so at the end of the day, that's been an interesting reflection is that the kind of external trappings that come with this idea of being a founder and selling your company and, you know, getting investors or ultimately getting acquired um, certainly have their allure, but you've got to step back and think about, you know, what is it that you really want? And if you're money motivated and you'll trade it all for the money, then great, that's what you should do. But for me, it turned out to be a much more complex reflection. Yeah, your self-awareness and, and kind of reflection on yourself is, is really awesome and inspiring. I, you know, a lot of what you've said, I hear a lot of my story in there too. Like um, I look at, you know, if I was to sell the company, you know, I don't even know what I would do with the money or with my life or the challenge. I, I'm actually, it's hard for me to put a, a financial number on it because um, this is my blood, my sweat, my tears. This is what I want to spend the next 
40, 50 years doing. This is where I, why I get up in the morning. I'm excited. It's hard to put a price on that because I don't know what I would replace it with. And to your point, fulfillment is, is, is more important to me than anything. And so is impact. And, you know, what you just said about, you know, somebody else having a different agenda and doing it, like, that just makes my stomach churn even thinking about it. So I well, think, well, I ask you this, Oz, because you've been in this world for a while. Name one company that got acquired and the product became higher quality, the customers became more satisfied, or the culture became uh, improved or more soulful than it was before that moment. I have a hard time naming any, right? I can tell you a bunch of situations where the opposite happened. But that moment of acquisition, I think, comes with a lot of compromise around culture, comes with a lot of compromise around vision, comes with a lot of compromise around quality. Because, of course, the first thing you do when you hire a company is you're like, great, where can we cut corners? Where can we get rid of redundancies? Where can we start to, you know, squeeze some more profit out of this thing? And that will have an impact on all kinds of things in the business. 100%. And that's what happens. As soon as you have to bow down to, to shareholders or investors and you're not making it about your customers or your employees anymore... Um, you're obviously going to have some level of degradation because there's only so much blood you can squeeze out of that rock. And so I'm not 100% opposed to investment or bringing in partners to help grow and make a bigger impact. But acquisition for me, just seems like something that's just such a such a far off thing that I just don't have a ton of interest in. And thus, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it or putting any anything around that. So great conversation. I love that, man. And uh, I appreciate those insights. We do got to talk about hiring. We have uh, some sponsors here. We want to make sure they keep paying the bills. So All right. Let's move into it. Jackie's laughing because we don't actually have any sponsors. Um, so we're going to start here. You've hired a lot of people for your business. Yep. What kind of core hiring philosophy do you have? Do you have one? Yes. Uh, and, and it has developed like most everything in my business through making a lot of missteps and learning the hard way. Um, what I've come to, you know, the old adage of, of, Hire slow, fire fast. I think that there's a lot of wisdom in that. But I think hire smart and, uh, again, look for the short list really emerges as a key philosophy. We just recently went through a hire and uh, I asked our hiring manager to require three things. Uh, number one, They've got to provide, obviously, you know, their resume, but a customized custom letter, uh, customized cover letter, sorry, is number two. And by customized, I mean, it can't just have the name of our company and then the same boilerplate they sent to everybody else. It's got to demonstrate, and the job description asks for this, why they think they're the right fit for this role. And then number three is uh, a one-minute video interview where on the video interview, they introduce themselves and they give us a feel for why this particular job piqued their interest. And if they don't turn in all three of those items, they don't get an interview. Now, really interesting because a lot of people would send in uh, their resume and disregard the other two. So obviously they're eliminated, they can't follow instructions. A lot of people would send in their resume and they would allude to their cover letter, which they hadn't attached. So no attention to detail, not meeting with them either. Um, some people would throw on a video, but you could tell that they interviewed, they had recorded the video for a different job. No attention to detail. They're not going to get an interview either. So we had hundreds and hundreds of submissions for this role. Only four people got it right 
and did all the three things we asked for. I don't think they were a big ask, by the way. A customized cover letter, what is that gonna take you? I don't know, 10 minutes, use ChatGPT, it takes you five. And the video, fine, you do three takes, it takes you, you know, 10 minutes. Not a big ask, right? But if you're in the churn and burn of like, I'm gonna get as many resumes out as possible because I'm playing a high volume game, you're not a fit for a company where the CEO of the company wrote a book called The Shortlist, right? Like, so ultimately we're looking for quality over quantity and putting those filters up, the more filters you put up, the fewer people ultimately come in having um, paid attention, really clearly they want the job, they're willing to put in the time, they're willing to be selective and discerning and choose yours over the many others that they could have put that time into. That's who I'm interested in talking to. Love that. That's fantastic. I really love that. What about a memorable interview experience? If I ask you about one of those, maybe you were interviewing or you were interviewing somebody else and come to mind. Well, gosh, you know, I, I think of this last job that we posted and there were, there were two in particular that were really memorable to the point where we didn't know which direction to go. I mean, we had an embarrassment of, of riches, right? Because we wanted them both equally. Um, and we only had the budget to hire one, unfortunately. But I would say that what they both did really well was that they were excellent stalkers. Mm. They went on the website. They really read about the people who were going to be interviewing with them. They went on LinkedIn. They looked for commonalities, not just commonalities like, oh, you're from the East Coast, I'm from the East Coast, but like uncommon commonalities. Like, oh, I see that three months ago, you commented on a post that Adam Grant put out. I love Adam Grant and I've read one of his books. Which one have you read? Like we can start a conversation off of that, right? But they dug in and really found those nuggets that create the unique connection. I love that. Yeah, that's showing research too. So those both of those candidates, how did you ultimately make the decision? Uh, ultimately, it was just getting the leadership team together and, you know, we had to take a vote and the people, it, you know, this is like any negotiation, right? You're, you're, you, if you've ever been in a romantic relationship, which you have, you know, this negotiation, which is like, I want this thing. You want that thing. Uh, all right. On a scale of one to 10, how important is this to you? And if it's a two and I'm a 10, we're just going to go with what I want. Right. But if it's the other way around, then we're going to go with you want. So it's not about the fact that we want two different things. It's like, how dug in are you on yours? Um, excellent negotiating has nothing to do with my business experience. It has everything to do with my relationship experience. So you are spot. <laughs> do you have a favorite question you like to ask in interviews? Do I have a favorite question? I always like to ask the question. Uh, actually, I love the strengths and weaknesses question. And I always tee it up by saying, I'm about to ask you about your weaknesses. Here's what I don't want you to do. I don't want you to tell me your weaknesses that you work too hard. I don't want you to tell me your weaknesses. You get really dedicated to work. Like, let me start with mine. One of my biggest weaknesses is that I really struggle to focus on uh, meetings that I'm having because I have this tendency to want to multitask and then my eyes dart over to email and, you know, like it's a really bad habit and I'm really like working on that because I hate it when I disrespect people and I'm in a meeting with them. That's the level of honesty I'm looking for. Go. What's your weakness? Right. So you got to tee them up so they realize they're not being set up to shoot themselves in the foot. Right. But I want them to understand that they're about to come on to a company potentially where the culture is very honest and very authentic. And I don't expect anybody to have zero weaknesses. In fact, I'm just interested in understanding what your weaknesses are so that I can either provide training or mentorship, or frankly, I have a stronger authentic human connection with you in getting to know you. So I think that the way that you frame the question is even more important than the question itself.
hundred percent agree. I, you know, a lot of people ask the weakness question, but to your point, then you're putting people on the defensive and, and they're, they're worried they're going to shoot themselves out of the job. And so then they start to pontificate about it. You know, I'm too on time or I'm That's too right. hard on myself. Right. And so you give them create a space where they can be vulnerable and they can open up. And by the way, your weakness, that's also another weakness I have and one I'm working to be better on. I've actually been checking email this entire podcast. I'm surprised you haven't noticed. but I've gotten five emails from you while we've been talking. <laughs> totally kidding. All right, I do want to ask this. So you're doing such a, a great job of kind of filtering down people who really want to work for you. But now you found the person. It's one of these two that you had. And yeah. you got to create a candidate experience where they're excited to work at Pipeline Plus. Yeah. What do you do? How do you kind of create and manicure that candidate experience so that now that you have the person that you think is a great fit, that they want to also see that you're a fit and want to work at your company? Well, we have somebody who's amazing uh, with onboarding and their attention to detail is tremendous, right? So they're in constant communication, really helping the new hire feel taken care of through the onboarding process. You're going to receive your laptop on this day and you're going to you know, receive on day one, we're going to do this. And on day two, we're going to do that. So really making sure that they're not kind of doing a trust fall into the void starting the job. Um, this may sound stupid, but I, I also think swag matters, right? I mean, they know that they're going to get a laptop because it's a remote position, but they didn't know they were going to get a coffee mug with our logo on it, right? So little things like that, uh, I think just help us. Oh, look at you with your coffee mug and your logo on it. Um, I think little things like that just help to express our excitement for them because these are little things we didn't have to give them, but we're proud of who we are and we're proud to like, you know, roll out the red carpet as much as possible without it being over the top. You're absolutely preaching to the choir. I do think that that creating that tribal connection and creating that that pride in your brand, it's something that's central to MSH. If you walk outside into our office right now, I would tell you 90% of people are wearing some sort of MSH swag. In fact, our dress code is that we want you to be business casual, but you can wear jeans and sneakers as long as you've got something with MSH or Aon on it because you're representing our company at that point. I'm proud for you to wear that on, around customers, around other employees and wear that to the office. And if that's what you're most comfortable in, then then we're all good there. Um, so totally, totally agree with you on that. And I think it's a very underrated aspect and a key way to invest to get not even just people you're onboarding to feel like they're part of your company, but the people that are already here uh, kind of remind them of why they work here and, and, and feel like they're affiliated with something. It's a small thing, but I think it really matters. Um, I want to move and I want to ask you some things about work right now. So is there anything you're working on currently that you're really excited about? You know, maybe it's getting out of the bed in the morning. Obviously the book, but maybe anything at Pipeline Plus? Uh, yeah, so we've just uh, launched a new SaaS product. Um, this is on top of the one that we already have. This one's called Pipeline Plus Insights. It's a content distribution channel that uh, basically takes a lot of the uh, concepts in the book and other things that we've developed in our e-learning platform and puts them into people's inbox, right? So you can license it on behalf of your firm and say, oh, I want everybody at my company to get an insight on this topic on Tuesday and this topic on Wednesday and this topic on Thursday. And then you can just curate it and send it out. Whole thing only takes a couple minutes. So I'm really excited about that because it's proactive. It's a way of kind of pushing the content to the people who want it within the organization, uh, as opposed to, you know, here's a whole e-learning library. I hope you check in at some point. I love that. All right. We usually go on LinkedIn and we like to find an old post and ask you what you meant or what you were saying at this time. So this one is from eight months ago. And you talk about the different roles in an unhealthy organization, the rescuer, the victim, and the persecutor. And the drama triangle that kind of encircles all three, or not encircles, but you know what I mean. Can you tell us what that what that is and what you kind of learned from that concept? 
Yeah. So eight months ago, man, you're really you're really testing me here. I, just for your for your listeners, you should all know this was a curveball. Oz gave me no prep that he was going to throw this question at me. But the idea, thank you. The idea behind it was that in every situation you want to examine, are you playing the role of the persecutor or the victim? Or what was the third one? Rescuer. The rescuer. Because in every situation, we tend to find ourselves leaning in one area versus another. And this is especially true when there's a conflict, right? So are you playing the role of, man, I'm going to take them down because they 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 brought this on themselves, right? I mean, they shouldn't have done X, Y, Z, or they wouldn't find themselves here. Okay, so now you're the persecutor, right? Are you playing the role of the victim where you're like, I can't believe they're doing that to me. I mean, I, I, I did everything right, right? Like going in that direction. Or are you the rescuer? Like, I, I, I'm. it really doesn't sit well with me that this is happening. I'm going to need to step in and sort this out. And I have to say, as a CEO, I'm often playing the role of the rescuer if there's an internal conflict in people in my team. But I'll slip into the victim sometimes when there's a prospect that isn't responding. And even though they said, oh, yeah, we're going to start next week. Uh, or I'll sometimes play the persecutor if there's a competitor who I feel like is stepping into my lane. Right. So we go into all of these three roles all the time in our heads. Um, the challenge is, you know, are you picking one that actually serves who you want to be? and what actually advances your company? Or is this a knee-jerk reaction because secretly we're all five years old? <laughs> I threw you a curveball, but you absolutely smacked that out of the park. So great job. I love that. Right. I'm going to use that going forward. Last question. If you had one bit of a career advice that you had to offer maybe yourself 20 years ago or maybe to somebody early in their career right now who's listening that you didn't know then, but you know now, what would it be? Oh, man, I would probably just go to Theodore Roosevelt's quote, Comparison is the thief of joy. And I think it happens all the time in business, right? You look at competitors that seem to be moving up faster than you are or came out of nowhere. Like there's a competitor who five years ago I'd never heard of. And then all of a sudden they're competing with us on work and winning bids, right? And it's like, how is that possible, right? And so all this comparison goes on. Uh, when you're in an environment, in a dynamic environment. And I'll tell you, I've never had that reflection and ended up happier on the other side of it. Cool. I love that. Another way of saying that the grass is greener, but I love the Teddy Roosevelt quote. Comparison is the thief of joy. Wise words from a very wise man. David, I really enjoyed our conversation. I do want to put this out there. If there's any Hollywood producers who have felt a gap since David left and you need a villain for CSI, I am available. I can make the time. But right now, I appreciate you coming on this podcast. Thanks for joining me, buddy. I'm looking forward to Thanks, being here. Appreciate right, it. Appreciate the opportunity. Talk to you later.